Beloved, you know what to do. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12 this morning. And let's stand together and I want us to read these words together this morning. I want us to go back once more to the beginning of chapter 12. And I want us to read all of this together. But we're just going to read the whole chapter. So let's stand together and let's read this together. This word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to the Apostle Paul to write to the church in Rome. These are the words of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the lord rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach these words this morning, and as we hear these words again, Father, we, we need you to bring these words home to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit with force. We need you, Lord God, to take these words and to make us hear them and, and deal with them appropriately. 
Father God, to consider the commands and the exhortations that you have given here to us and really allow ourselves to be examined by your word. Our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions evaluated by your holy truth. We need you to bring your word, Father, home to our hearts with power. And Lord, in order for that to take place, you must be our instructor today. You must be the one who speaks today. The voice of Christ must be heard today. And so, Lord, I am praying that you would unstop all of our ears, not just the congregation, the preacher too. And God, I pray that you would grant to me the unction of your Holy Spirit, that I would be an instrument in your hands, that, Father God, I would preach in accordance only with your will, that I would do nothing of my own wisdom and nothing of, of, you know, of my own flesh, but everything that I would preach and everything that I would say would be in accordance with your holy will. It would be pleasing in your sight. It would be pleasing to you and Father, for the blessing and the edification and the strengthening of your people here in this place. And that through your the preaching of your word this morning, the voice of Christ would be heard. And Father, those in this room that are Christ's disciples would hear and obey. And those in this room who are yet outside the family of God and who have, have not submitted their hearts and have not believed and trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, that this day, Father God, their stubborn hearts would be overcome by the superior power of the grace of God. I pray, Lord, You will move mightily in our midst today. I pray that these words would not just be deflected off our hearts and off our minds, but, Father, that we would receive them. And, Lord, that they would bear real fruit in us. Not for a moment, not for a season, but, Father, for a lifetime. And I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. You know, beloved, we are fast approaching the close of Romans chapter 12. I know it doesn't seem fast, but we are fast approaching the close of Romans chapter 12. We've probably got two more, I would say, sermons in this chapter before we get to what Paul has to say about, you know, our relationship to government in Romans chapter 13. And I know that some of you are, you know, just waiting with bated breath for that because you've been talking to me about it. You know, you can read ahead. It's okay. You know, you won't get in trouble for that. But I want us to think about this. You know, this deliberate and this this thoughtful walk through Romans 12, I think, has been very valuable to our understanding of what it means to really live out our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, to really understand what are the marks of a true Christian, right? 
I want you to remember, we need to remember and keep intention whenever we're studying Romans chapter 12, that everything that Paul's commanding here, everything that Paul's exhorting us to, all that he's, you know, all that he is demanding of us is predicated on the fact that we have been born again by the Spirit of God, right? That we've been made alive from sin and from death unto God, right? That we're Christians, that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus, that we have had our ears opened and our, 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 our eyes, you know, opened to hear the gospel of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we've heard the gospel, that we have, you know, truly repented of our sins, that we believed in Christ and called upon the Lord to save us. And so now because we are new creations in Christ, we have a desire to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. We have a desire to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. A desire to walk in such a way that we honor God from a heart of gratitude and love because He has loved us first and saved us, right? That's the whole idea here. So accordingly, these commands, these exhortations, listen, they're not helpful hints for happy living. That's not what they are. They are not a way to earn salvific merit with God. They're not as Sam alluded to when he was praying. This is not self-help. This is instead, this is instead the supernatural outworking of having received the gospel of the grace of God, right? Like Paul told Titus, these are familiar verses to us. I've, you know, I've quoted these a lot. Doesn't even going through Romans, but he says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, these words, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's people from all the nations of the world, right? That's not everybody. We're not universalists, and neither is the word of God. But the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to pur- to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, right? God redeemed us. He saved us. Not just to redeem us from the penalty of sin, but to redeem us from the power of sin. And so the, so that we would be zealous for good works, zealous to walk in a manner that reflects the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Now, here's why Romans 12 is so important. Here's why Romans 12 is so necessary, right? If we look in our world today, it becomes quite obvious that for the majority of churches in our world, what they are zealous for is not good works done in the power of the Holy Spirit to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, but what their desire is, great works done by them for their glory and for their exaltation in the world. Is that not true? It is. Our churches today are so incredibly self-focused. And what Paul writes to us here in Romans chapter 12 demands that we take our eyes off ourselves 
that we take our eyes off ourselves in order to magnify and exalt us. And that we put them specifically on Christ and seek to model his life. That we live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. That we live in a manner that, that demonstrates that we are zealous for good works. That we're zealous to proclaim the glory of God, God's grace in Christ to us. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 just how we do that. Just how we do that. Think about what he's called us to. Man, he's called us to present ourselves, all that we are, to God as living sacrifices, right? Which he calls our spiritual worship. It's what's just fitting. It's fitting that if we've been redeemed from the slave market of sin, and we've been redeemed from the mire and the muck of our sin, and we have been redeemed from the wrath of God, that we should then present ourselves in gratitude and humility to God himself as living sacrifices so that he might be magnified through us. Amen? He commands us to refuse to be conformed to the mindset of the world any longer, the mindset in which we once lived, right? But rather to be transformed for the, through the renewal of our minds so that we can actually discern what is God's good and acceptable and perfect will and then do it. Paul commands us. To have a proper view of ourselves before the Lord. And to use the gifts that God has given to us, not to magnify ourselves, but for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He calls us to have a love for God that's sincere, that's paramount in our lives, that's the, the deciding factor in our lives, the decisive, you know, identifying mark that we would love God. With a sincere love. And that one of the ways that that's shown is by hating evil and clinging to what's good. He says we must love one another with a brotherly affection. Right? With a family love. Like we should have a closeness and a, and a tightness that, that can't be found anywhere else in the world except in the body of Christ. Right? That transcends all of the barriers and all the things that the world says divides us and, and, and wraps them up in a nice little ball and tosses them in the garbage. And so there might be many things that the world says divides us, but the one thing that unites us is the Spirit of God and the bond of love, right? It calls us to demonstrate our love for one another by showing honor to one another. He says we're not to be lazy in our walk with the Lord. But we're to have a fervent spirit and serve Him with a whole heart. That's what a true believer does. They have a fervent spirit that serves the Lord with everything that's in them. He calls us to be patient in tribulation because He knows that if we live a life of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to face tribulation, persecution, and hardship in this world, right? And He tells us how we do that. He tells us that we are we remain patient in tribulation... By rejoicing in the hope of heaven and by being constant in prayer, right? He commands us to care for one another because we're going to need it. He commands us to give generously to those who are in need and have a big-hearted hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's commanded that we don't act like worldlings and, and, and that we don't hate those who persecute us, but rather that we bless them. That we don't react with hatred towards those who hate us because we love Christ. 
but rather that we seek their blessing. We don't curse, we seek their blessing. And, and the greatest blessing is what? Their salvation, right? It calls us to give one heart together, right? To rejoice with one another. When one of us is blessed, when one of us, you know, experiences something good, we are to rejoice with that brother, rejoice with that sister, celebrating their blessing as if it were our own, right? Because in some way, as the body of Christ, we share in one another's blessings together. And then for those who face hardship or heartache, we're to weep with those who weep. And we bear the burden of their heartache and we bear the burden of their trial as much as we can, feeling it as our own because you know what it is, right? He's called us to be in harmony with one another. That was what we looked at last week, that we should be of one mind, that there's no room for, you know, differing opinions that differ with the Word of God, but that we are to be of one heart and one mind, of one soul, united regarding the binding authority and the transcendent truth of the Word of God, regarding the person and the character and the sovereign authority of God the Father and the person and the ministry and the saving work of the Lord Jesus and the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're to be of one mind about the gospel. We are to be of one mind about what it means to live out a life that, that reflects the implications of the gospel. We're to be of one mind about how we pursue godliness and righteousness. One mind regarding our place as the body of Christ and our mission in this world to contend for the faith and to stand resolutely on God's truth and to make His glory known and seek the lost that they might be saved. Right? It's all extremely practical, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, people will say, like, with your theology, is not very practical. Read the read Scripture, right? It's very practical. All of it. It's all coming forth from a right understanding of the gospel, right? It's all very practical, and it requires an honest examination of our lives, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I remember when I was a kid, and my dad would give me, you know, a command, and, he'd, and I wouldn't listen. Or I didn't acknowledge it. Let me just put it that way. It's not that I didn't. I heard it. I just didn't acknowledge it. And he would say, boy, I'm not speaking to the air. And I'd be like, yeah, you're right. And I would respond quickly, right? Paul's not speaking to the air here. This is not just theoretical stuff. This is practical and it's real. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Examine yourself. Because of these things, if you're not pursuing these things, and these characteristics are not growing in your life, don't just sit there and content yourself and say, well, I'm a Christian, but. Because there's no but clause here, right? And now here's what we're going to do. In the rest of verse 16 this morning, that we're going to look at this morning, Paul deals here, beloved, with the one thing, with the one thing, that can undermine and unravel everything that he has been exhorting us to be and to do. He's going to deal with the one thing that can take a sledgehammer to the unity of heart and mind that each of these commands demands and develops in the body of Christ. And that one thing is pride. That one thing is the problem of pride. Okay? The pride goes by a lot of names in our world. 
Pride goes by those names that are a little more offensive like haughtiness or, or, or conceit or boasting. But it also goes by stuff like self-esteem and self-assuredness and self-confidence and self-importance. And what I'm going to say to you is this. There's nothing that will undermine the godliness and injure true unity in the church of the living God like pride will. It is the native sin of man ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Is it not? Is it not? In fact, we're so... We live in such a prideful world, don't we? Such an arrogant world. We're almost blind to the reality of pride. Or we become sort of insulated to it, right? We expect expressions of self-importance and self-exaltation like, you know, that's the norm. I mean, we expect when a guy scores a touchdown that he's going to do some kind of stupid dance. So that if a guy would actually score a touchdown and, and get up and give the ball to the referee, like the greatest of all time used to, you know, like Jim Brown and Walter Payton, that's what's surprising these days, not the stupid dance. We just expect it. Because people invariably draw attention to themselves in this world in which we live. It's the native sin of man since the fall of the Garden of Eden. And even though we may have become conditioned to it, it is an abomination in the eyes of Almighty God. You hearing me? It's an abomination in the eyes of Almighty God. Jonathan Edwards says of sin in various places, this isn't a direct quotation, this is a compilation of his thoughts, but he says of sin in several places things like this. I just want you to listen to it. He says of pride, just listen to what he says. He says, pride is a person just simply having too high an opinion of himself. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and the last sin that is rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of sins. And might I add this, while at the same time being one of the most obvious. Pride is the worst viper in the human heart. Pride is the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and of sweet communion with Christ and of the communion of the saints. There's no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Pride is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all lusts, and it is the, with the greatest difficulty rooted out of our hearts. Pride is the most stubborn enemy. There's no sin so much like the devil as pride. It is a secret and a subtle sin. It shifts, shifts shapes. It appears in a great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected. Pride often creeps, he says, insensibly into the midst of religion. Even sometimes under the disguise of humility itself. Alas, how much pride the best have in their hearts. The best have in their hearts. Beloved, sin, pride is, is, is such a destructive sin 
for this very reason. It's because pride sets us over and against God himself. There are a lot of sins that keep us from God. But pride is a sin that sets us against him. Are you hearing me? It sets us against him. It's an affront to God's singular glory. Because in pride, what we do is this. We seek our own glory and we seek to elbow God off his throne while enthroning ourselves. Now, we don't define pride in that way. Because if we did, that sounds like a really stupid idea, right? We define it in a myriad of other ways and we disguise it and camouflage it so we can protect it and promote it. But pride at its heart, at its heart, seeks to dethrone God while enthroning ourselves. And for that reason, beloved, God has some devastating things to say about the prideful. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance. And the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. Proverbs 16 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Proverbs 21, verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, the haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, and then verse 17, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. No wonder. Peter tells us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Literally, God himself sets himself in battle array against the proud to destroy them, to bring them to nothing, to stop their arrogant mouths and to crush their prideful hearts. God sets himself in battle order against the proud. He hates pride, but he blesses humility. Pride in the heart of a Christian, beloved, is a monstrous thing. It is repulsive. And you know why? It's because it denies the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? What does anybody in this room have to be proud of? What does anyone here have something to be eternally proud of? To magnify yourself for. To stand before God and say, God, look at me. To stand in front of other believers and say, I am chief among you. Not a thing. 
Not a thing. If you understand the gospel, you know you're an unworthy wretch who's been given the grace of God. Or yet you would yet be in your sin and on your way to eternal hell. It's repulsive to God. It's wretched. It is monstrous. Because the prideful person, the prideful Christian, it's an oxymoron. That shouldn't even be in there. But the Christian who is given to pride devalues and dishonors the price of redemption. He dishonors the very blood of Christ. If you think you're somehow good, if you think that somehow you're not as bad as everybody else, you devalue the very price paid to redeem you. If that's the case, why would God crush his own son? If that's the case, why would Christ shed his holy blood? God hates pride. He hates it for what it does to people individually. And he hates it for what it does to his church. We've all, we all know of churches that split into splinters over pride and arrogance and, and, and just, you know, jockeying for supremacy in the body. We all know stories of churches like that. And there's a reason why. If God's not supreme in the body, then everybody else is struggling to try to be supreme in the body. Isn't that true? If God's not first, somebody has to be. And better me than you. Right? Pride destroys the fabric of worship. It tears at the fabric of mutual love and brotherly affection and gracious service to one another. And instead it shows sows discord. And there are numerous ways in which pride rears its ugly head. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this morning, Paul is going to place his focus on two kinds of pride in this text. I want you to see this with me. The first is what we might call pride of place. Pride of place or social pride. It's this sort of mindset that looks upon oneself in a superior way. And then looks down the nose at everybody else and divides the rest of the church into classes and categories and tiers. And then relates to people according to their standing, to that person's standing in relationship to his or her self-perception. Right? This is who I am. This is where everybody else is on the pecking order. And therefore, these are the people that I will allow the honor of hanging out with me. And the second thing he deals with here is intellectual pride. It's a pride that's based on a mindset that sees oneself as being superior in intellect and wisdom as compared to everybody else. Both of them are deadly and both of them are destructive to the church. So we're going to look at them. We're going to look at them together this morning, okay? And the first thing we're going to look at here is the pride of place. Look at what Paul says. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Now, what's the heart of this command? What's, what's Paul getting at? Well, when he says do not be haughty, in essence, what Paul is saying is this. Don't be self-important. Don't, don't be self-impressed. Don't think that you're any better than any or everyone else. Don't, don't think 
more highly of yourself than you should. Don't seek to exalt yourself above other people. Don't be puffed up. Don't be pompous. And seek honor and status for yourself. Never think of others in the church as being beneath you. Never think of another Christian as being beneath you. Never think of another Christian as being beneath you. I'm not having a stroke. I'm repeating that because you need to hear it. We need to hear it. I need to hear it. Instead, he says, associate with the lowly. Now, you might stop there. And if you're paying attention, you might go, now, wait a minute. Hold on here. When Paul says that, when he says associate with the lowly, isn't he placing people in a class? Isn't he doing the very thing you said not to do? Isn't he putting people in a class and in a category and in a tier by identifying some of them as being lowly? Isn't that what he's doing? No. That is not what Paul is doing. That's not it at all. He's talking about Christians in general. They're the lowly. He's talking about Christians in general. They are considered lowly in the eyes of the world. Do you remember his words to the Corinthian church? A church, by the way, that was up to the gills with pride. Remember them? And he said to them this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When Paul speaks about the lowly here, he's including all of us. He's including all of us. And his point is, is don't be haughty because you're lowly. In the eyes of the world, you are nothing, man. The proud world considers you ignoble and weak and foolish and low and to be despised. That's what the world thinks of you. When he says to associate with the lowly, he's talking about the people of God, no matter their former life, no matter their appearances, no matter their status in society. He's talking about those whose catalog of sins, whether they're respectable or shocking. And it's interesting to me that, you know, sometimes it's, it's our sins are always respectable. Everybody else's is always shocking, right? doesn't matter. That catalog of sins has been forgiven by God. He's talking about those who have been saved by grace and have been lifted from the mire of sin and who've been justified by the blood of Christ. Those who do not seek worldly acclaim any longer. Who don't grasp for worldly attainments. Who could care less about those things. Who serve God and not mammon. Who seek the approval of the crucified one and not man. 
who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and who no matter what they have or do not have, they are supremely content in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, don't be haughty. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you should, but rather associate with the lowly of the world, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's what you are. Not dividing your brothers and sisters into classes and tiers and choosing then to associate only with those who you consider to be on your level. Do not try to strive for ascendancy and superiority over others, that look at me kind of thing. But you associate with, you associate with all who are in Christ. You, you invest your life and you invest your life in and with them. And with everyone among the people of God, hear me now, hear me now, without distinction. Without distinction. Now here's the deal. We'll hear that command, right? How many of y'all, when you heard that command, were like, oh, that doesn't even sound right? None of us, right? We heard that command and we're like, we intellectually, we intellectually agree with that, don't we? Yes, this makes good sense. I shouldn't be haughty. What do I have to boast in? I should associate myself with the lowly, with, with, with every brother or sister in Christ, because we're all lowly in the eyes of God without any distinction whatsoever. Yep, that's absolutely true. We know it's right. And we, but what we really need to ask ourselves is this, is that true of me? Are you with me? Is that true of me? Like, we're really good sometimes. We can hear commandments in the Word of God and say, you know, I sure hope Hunter Smith was listening this morning. Or Travis Parker. I usually think of Mark Taylor. No, I'm kidding. But but we do that. We hear those commands. It's really easy to pitchfork to somebody else, right? We can think of somebody who needs to hear those words. Right? Isn't that true? Oh, nobody wants to admit it. We're all going to be super holy because it's Sunday. Right? You do it. You know you do. I've never committed that sin. Well, now you just lied. We hear it. Pitchfork it. That's not what this is for. Is this true of me? That's what I need to be asking. Is this how I live? We need to ask ourselves, what is it really that attracts me to associate with other Christians? Do I have a standard in my mind? Is it their wealth or their social position? Is it their beauty or their reputation or their worldly attainments or their education or what I might gain from that person or just simply because they are my brother or my sister in Christ? Beloved, when we think about, and we're, when our considerations are wealth or social position or beauty or reputation or worldly attainments or education or anything else, you know what that is? That is evaluating people through a worldly grid, a worldly mindset, a fleshly mindset. You hearing me? And yet too many Christians are enamored with just those things. 
They evaluate people in this way. They evaluate Christians in the church in that way. And you know what? It's a grave error. I remember in our last church, right? I remember in our last church, we were, we had a man in the congregation, okay? Not a member, but a frequent attender, you know, until he wasn't, right? But he was a doctor. And all of the worst stereotypes, you know, that you can think of a doctor, that was this guy. Like he was, he was, he was, you know, self-important. He's highly educated and let everybody know it all the time. He was wealthy. He was socially situated. He was pompous. He was charismatic. And man, he was haughty. And I remember we had a family member that, that came down to visit us, right? And this guy happened to be at church on the particular Sunday that the family member was there. And, you know, the, that member, family member got to meet him. And they were just immediately enthralled with him. He was the best thing ever. He was the, he was the most wonderful example of a Christian that, that, you know, they'd ever seen. And, and he just, oh, was so impressed. Wanted to hang out with this guy. Talked about him continually. Wanted to hang out with him and with his wife. Because of all of those surface things that he had going. The truth is, spiritually, the dude was a wreck. He was unteachable. He was prideful. He was boastful. He was a constant headache in shepherding the church until, praise God, he finally left. But our family member, to our family member, his worldly attainments made him attractive. Our family member saw him as my class of people. Or at least in the tier or the class that they wanted to be in. And his spiritual condition was of absolutely no consequence. And so they elevated that man in their mind over everybody else in the body and sought to be like him. Because he had all the goodies. All the stuff. And so he was attractive in their eyes. Someone with whom to associate. What a ridiculous thought that is. How offensive to God that is. Well, that not must not be us. You know what? We ought not care a whit if somebody is rich or poor or high or low or educated or uneducated, popular or insignificant, beautiful or ordinary. Those are worldly distinctions. There are no classes. There are no categories. And there are no tears in the body of Christ because all earthly distinctions are leveled at the cross. All of them. They're leveled at the cross. There's no room for pride of place. There's no room for social pride. No room for a pecking order. Here there's not Greek or Jew. Circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Amen? When it comes to investing our lives in others. 
and with others. What should be of the greatest motivation is this. Are they a child of the living God? Do they know Christ in truth? Are they rich in faith? Do they seek to honor and glorify Christ? Are they my brother and sister in Christ? And if not, how then can I share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they might become my brother or my sister in Christ? That's the motivation. Listen to me, beloved. What someone is in this passing world is nothing. What someone is to this passing world is nothing. What they will be in the age to come is everything. Everything. There's no place for class distinctions. There's no place for social stratification or a pecking order of partiality in the body of Christ because there is none. We don't pridefully assess people in terms of their status, thinking that we're better than anybody else. Or for we don't evaluate who's good for our personal gain. When we consider anybody, our only interest should be this. Is he or she a blood-bought child of God? Is he or she an heir of eternal life? Is he or she a lover of God? Does he or she belong to God? Because if they do, and I belong to God in Christ, then they belong to me. That's it. There's no place for pride and partiality in the body of Christ. There's no room for for self-importance and self-seeking and superiority over other people. What does anybody have? What does any of us have in which to be prideful over another in the body of Christ? Not a thing. George Whitfield gives great counsel. He says, to help prevent spiritual pride, let us remember that we did not choose Christ, but we were chosen by him. We have nothing but what has been given to us. The free grace of God has alone made the difference between us and anyone else if there is a difference. And if God was to leave us to the deceitfulness of our own hearts for even one moment, we would become weak and wicked like other men. We should further consider that being proud of grace is the quickest way to diminish it. Moreover, there ought to be no desire in us to magnify or exalt ourselves or strain for an imagined status or prominence over, prominence over everybody else in the body because the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who is rightly exalted above all others, our Lord and Savior, did not do that. Did He? Did He? There's no pride in Christ. He humbled himself. Became a man. Became a servant. Became the crucified one, became Savior. That's not the pathway of pride. That's the pathway of humility for the sake of others. By the one who has the most to brag about in reality in all the universe. It wasn't the heart of our our Lord at all. You remember how he had to deal with this continually with his disciples. Let's give you a couple of examples. 
You remember when the disciples, they would be arguing. One of the things that would consume them with their arguments was what? It was self-promotion. They would argue to desiring to promote themselves and they would argue against one another about who was the greatest in the kingdom, right? James and John even put their mom up to go unto Jesus and asking for, you know, the throne on the right and the left for her kids. You remember what Jesus said to them in all their self-seeking? Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The way you're talking right now, you're talking like an unregenerate fool. That's what he's saying. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then in chapter 20, starting in verse 25. He said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They, they lord their superiority over them. And that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's no place for pride or sinful ambition in the body of Christ. They are dis- pride is a, is a destructive, pernicious, insidious sin. It's the very opposite of the heart of Christ. And when we inject that sin into our relationships, it destroys unity, it fractures the body, it splits the people of God into different camps, and it mars the fellowship of the saints. When we classify some saints as either being desirable or undesirable, we magnify and we inflate ourselves. And we think ourselves superior. And we judge them according to a worldly mindset. And we entice the, our other brothers and sisters in Christ to do that very same thing. And that only leads to greater disunity and division and, and to just brokenness and fracture rather than wholehearted love and mutual edification as is befitting the people of God. You with me? And the very essence of the gospel is that we're all unworthy. That we're all unworthy. That every one of us is in the equal need of the salvation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we all need the reconciliation for our iniquity that He made. That we all need, you know, the, the, the purging of our sins that He accomplished by the offering of ourselves. That we all need to be redeemed from the curse that we we're under and to make satisfaction for we need Christ to make satisfaction to the justice for the justice of God the cost of my redemption the cost of your redemption listen it's the cost it's the same cost as everybody else's it's not like because you didn't commit the most heinous of sins that somehow the price of your redemption was just a little bit less than that guys over there It's not that at all. The cost of our redemption is the same. The blood of Christ shed for us. And that's why it's just so foolish to engage in pride, the pride of place, the pride of self-promotion, 
Why it's so stupid and, and ignorant to, to, to divide people into tiers and classes and categories within the body of Christ and to exalt yourself over other people and to look down on another brother or sister in Christ. It's astonishingly tone deaf and ignorant. You know what it's like? It's like a den of skunks arguing with one another over who smells less atrocious. It's like a bunch of skunks arguing with one another over whose odor is less appalling, whose odor is less pungent, whose low odor is least offensive. I'm the best smelling of the skunks. So what? You're a skunk. I'm the king of the skunks. You're still a skunk. I am the greatest. I am the best example of a skunk. You're still a skunk. And skunks all stink to the heavens. There's not one that smells good. Nobody goes and gets a pet skunk and brings them into their home and expects them to act like an air freshener. They're all skunks. And they stink to the heavens. And you know what? So did you. And so did I. And so did everyone. Until Christ gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 2. Like Charles Spurgeon so pithily says, I love this. He's always so good at this. He says, be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. Be not proud of race, face, place or grace and then turning from haughtiness paul addresses here the sin of intellectual pride and he just says simply never be wise in your own sight that's good advice but it's not just an advice it's an it's a command isn't it isn't it i mean that's really good advice like if you think you're wise in your own sight don't worry you'll be exposed, right? That happens all the time. People think they're smarter than they are and they get exposed in public and it's like, oh, it's so humiliating. And that's really, you know, stinging to our, quote, pride, right? But that's not the issue here. This is a command of the Lord. Never be wise in your own sight. What's Paul getting at? He's getting at this. Don't think you're smarter and wiser than everybody else. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Don't think you're smarter than everybody else. Don't think that you can't learn from another Christian. Never be impressed with your own intellect. That's what he's getting at. Never consider yourself to be the smartest person in the room. And puffed up with pride in your own mind. But that kind of pride is really evident in our world, isn't it? Isn't it? People think they know everything. People are know-it-alls. They know everything. In fact, that's the defining sin of unregenerate, unconverted people. They think themselves to be smarter and wiser than they really are. You remember earlier in this book, Romans 1? Maybe you don't remember. It's been a while, but I'll refresh your memory. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, right? Then he says, for what 
can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, you should be able to look at the creation and say, there is a God. And here's what I know about him. He is immensely powerful and he is capable of miracles beyond my imagination there's an order to this god there is a justice that is about this god there are this we should be able to look at creation and say yeah there's a god for sure for this invisible his invisible attributes namely his eternal power divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have made been made so that they are without excuse oh here's why For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the climax. Claiming to be wise. They became, you finish it, fools. Now here's the deal, beloved. Obviously, God overcame that native sin in all of us to redeem us, right? But the temptation to intellectual pride doesn't just mysteriously vanish when we're saved. It's still there. Although it takes on sometimes a religious flavor. Where you set yourself up as the deciding authority in all things spiritual. And you begin to think of yourself as smarter than everybody else. That's the danger. And intellectual pride shows itself in a number of ways, right? The desire, for instance, to be considered wise, wanting people to think you're smart or trying to impress people with their knowledge or having a know-it-all attitude or, you know, that because you're so advanced, you don't get much out of the teaching that you hear, whether it's in Sunday school or it's on a Bible study or it's on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. You don't get much. That's, that's for the plebeians among us. They, they need that, but I, I don't need that. I knew that already. Yes, I knew that, and I knew that, and I knew that too. In fact, I know so much that there's not much room left in my brain for things to learn, right? It shows itself in our being completely unteachable or uncorrectable, right? Unsubmissive to the Word of God. You see it, intellectual pride in those that are deflective and critical and contentious and unaccountable. You see intellectual pride in those who sort of isolate themselves from other people because they don't think that they can learn from anyone else, right? Intellectual pride is deadly. You know, one of the reasons I love the men's Bible study on Friday morning so much is because of the absence of that spirit among us. Like, I love men's Bible study on Fridays. It's awesome. Like, when we go in there, it's great. Like, we go in there, and everybody's on the same page, and the rage in age is 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 significant. It's like 18 to ancient, right? And, 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 and it's... But we each learn from one another as we learn from the Scriptures. And there's... There's this absence of intellectual pride that blesses everybody. It's a blessing to my own soul. Now, all those things that I've I've mentioned here that intellectual pride causes, listen, 
All those things, they sow discord in the body. But where intellectual pride really makes its greatest impact and damage in the body of Christ is in undermining the love that we should have for one another. It's in undermining the love that we should have for one another. In fact, here's, let me show you what I mean by that. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Turn, turn over to 1 Corinthians 13 in your Bibles really quickly. Just the next book. Turn over there. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is describing the love that we ought to have for one another, right? And it's a powerful passage. It is it's a powerful passage, especially because it was originally written as a rebuke to the pride of the Corinthians. It's not that Paul just decided in the middle of his letter to the Corinthians to wax rhapsodically about love. He brings love up because the pride in the Corinthian church was running amok and it was fracturing their fellowship. And so he's like, look, I need to give you a real definition of love. So here you go. And so he says, start in verse 4, look at it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And the idea is now go love like that, right? Stop being arrogant and start loving like this. Because here's the deal, beloved. The one who's proud in his own sight, who's wise in his own sight, who's proud of his own wisdom, who's puffed up with knowledge, who isolates himself in his heart from other people because he considers himself to be intellectually superior. Listen to me. He cannot love like this. He can't. And his presence in the body undermines the spirit of love in the church. His presence in the body undermines the spirit of love in the church. Let me explain. Okay? Let me just explain it. The person who's puffed up with pride cannot be patient and kind. You know why? Because the intellectually proud person gives no grace to anybody to grow. And their standards are inflexible. You either meet it or else. Right? Self-conceit, intellectual pride is always full of envy and boastfulness. Right? It desires recognition and praise. And it envies anybody who seems to get more praise than them. Intellectual pride is arrogant and rude precisely because it does insist on its own way and it lacks respect and esteem for other people. It refuses to listen to anybody else. It always promotes itself and acts in a heavy-handed way. People who are wise in their own estimate are irritable and resentful Precisely because they always think that they're right and above correction and learning. And so they're irritated if someone points out 
anything in their lives that is out of step with their profession of faith in Christ. They can't be corrected. For that reason, sinful conflict follows them everywhere and infects all of their relationships. They're the people that never have old friends. Only new cycles of interchangeable ones. They're the ones that all of their relationships are characterized by contention and strife except with those who they believe give them due deference. Those who are filled with intellectual pride rejoice at wrongdoing because they rejoice in their own imagined superiority. They can't rejoice with the truth because they're deceitful and pretentious about themselves. They can't bear all things because there are some people they simply can't bear with. They can't believe all things because they're suspicious of others. The intellectually proud are very often suspicious of everybody else. They can't hope all things because they're insecure in themselves. That's why they have to keep puffing themselves up. They can't endure all things because they can't endure not being viewed in a certain light. And their love for brothers and sisters in Christ, the way that Paul describes it, always comes to an end. Listen to me. Because it never truly begins as it should. Beloved, both those forms of pride, pride of place and intellectual pride, they tear at the fabric of unity because they lack in real and true love. Now, here's the deal. In preaching this to you, I feel sure of better things for us. What I mean by that is, I believe that as a whole, we want to reject and avoid the pride of place and intellectual pride. I believe we really do want to love one another well and be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't we? Don't we? Help me out here. Don't we? But for that to happen, listen... We've got to be on guard against the inroads of pride in our hearts and in this body. And we need to kill it quickly and we need to kill it thoroughly. We need to be on guard. Well, how do we do that? How do we be on guard against pride in our hearts and in our church and put it to death? How, how do we, you know, be really on guard against this particularly destructive sin? Well, here's where it starts. It begins with this. It begins with you and me hearing this message and receiving it with an intent to be edified and corrected and to repent of those areas in our lives where pride is making inroad. That's where it starts. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to examine, right, our lives to see where pride may be gaining a foothold. Because look, man, if I'm honest with myself, I'll just say this. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands. I'll raise mine. If I'm honest with myself, I can see pride in areas of my thinking and in my own actions. Stuff that I need to repent of, that I've needed to repent of, that I have repented of. Like I can see areas where pride raises its ugly head. And if you're sitting there thinking 
that this message really doesn't have anything to do with me, then quite frankly, you are so eaten up with pride, you have no idea. Man, that's a harsh statement. You're right, and it's true. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, that's not me at all, I never do that. Not only are you blind to your pride, you lie to yourself. You've deceived yourself into thinking that there is no possibility for temptation in this area. And the reality is, you're consumed with it. I'm entreating you this morning to honestly assess yourself in light of these words. And to ask the Lord, you know, like the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The way it begins is that we, all of us, take the words of this sermon to heart and we let them examine us, right? And then second, we see the pride in our lives and we hate it for what it is and we repent of it and we turn from it. We repent of it and we turn from it. We see it for what it is. We see it for the foolish, thankless disregard of the cost of our salvation, a failure to to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord, a sin that damages not just you, but the whole body of Christ, and then we repent. We repent with the knowledge that the sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We repent. Knowing that, as God said through Isaiah, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And then last, as Peter wrote, quoted earlier, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the fountainhead and the wellspring and the source of humility, real humility, is a deep understanding of the profound nature of God's grace to you. Beloved, Christ loved us and he died for us and he forgave us and he accepted us and he justified us and he gave us eternal life and made us heirs of the world when we deserved eternal death, condemnation, humiliation, and destruction. And that's not just some Christians. That's every single one of us. Clothe yourself with humility because all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And either you believe that or you believe a lie. Like D.A. Carson said, the place where God has supremely destroyed all human arrogance and pretension is at the cross. We are equal at the foot of the cross. And we need to remind ourselves of that daily. That we don't deserve the riches of God's grace. But that we've received His love and His kindness and His mercy. And so we ought to be humble toward God. And we ought to be humble towards those who are in Christ for the same reason as we are. Because of nothing in us at all and everything in Christ.
if our Savior was the embodiment of humility, shouldn't we be? Shouldn't we be? I'll close this morning with these words, these powerful and pointed words from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. He said, Jesus stripped off first one robe of honor and then another until naked he was fashioned, fastened to the cross. There he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us. Finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulders still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and his feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pangs, the throes of inward grief, how they show themselves in his outward frame. Hear the chilling shriek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're not humble in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. As Jesus stooped for you, bow in humility at His feet. The realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. Let us sit there and learn our lesson then let us rise and carry it into practice. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise your holy name. And we bless you, Lord God, for this word that that you gave to Paul that you preserved through the ages that is both timeless and timely. And Lord, I pray that we would hear this text exegeted this day and that our hearts would be moved by your Spirit to examine ourselves in truth before you. And Lord God, to seek to be conformed to your word. To seek, Lord God, to have pride die a death, a real death in our hearts. That, Father, we would be vigilant and quick, Lord God, to notice the inroads of pride in each of our hearts and that we would put it to death by the Word of God in prayer. And that 
Father, we would hate pride and love humility. And that we would grow in humility, in meekness before you. Where pride is a hateful sin. It's a damaging one. And it is quite often the very sin that keeps people from Christ. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, but I also pray, Lord God, for those that are in this room who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have heard the truth, and who in their pride have rejected a crucified Savior, risen from the dead. I pray, Lord God, that you would remove any thoughts of ascendancy and arrogance in the hearts of those who have refused Christ to this point. And I pray, Lord God, that you would change their hearts. That Spirit of the living God, you would regenerate and quicken them. That you would make them to see both the horrific nature of their sin, the judgment that it deserves, and the salvation that alone is found in Christ. And that you, Father, would give them the very faith in which to lay hold of Christ as Lord. I pray that, Father, you'd work in our midst, move mightily, applying your truth powerfully, making us to remember that which is worthy of remembrance, and, Father, anything that isn't, that you just make it dross, and that would blow away. Like chaff. Search our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.